From the Nipty Radio Recording Studios, high above 107 Columbia Street in the heart of uptown downtown Albany, welcome to this week's edition of the Nipty Practice Tips. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest edition of the Nippy Practice Tips. Today we'll be discussing the fellow officer rule. A law enforcement officer, referred to as receiving officer, is permitted to act upon information supplied by a fellow officer, referred to as a sending officer, to take an individual into custody or undertake some other form of intrusion upon the civilian's rights without having personally seen the conduct nor possessing specific information of what such conduct was that would justify the intrusion. At the time the receiving officer acts, he or she is not required to know who supplied the first-hand information upon which he or she is acting, nor the reliability of that informant, nor the informant's basis of knowledge. The information possessed by the sending officer is attributed to the receiving officer. It is only at the suppression hearing that the information possessed by the sending officer is examined by the court to determine if the information possessed by the sending officer justified the level of intrusion, which includes the informant's basis of knowledge and reliability. There is one part of the information possessed by the sending officer that must be sent to the receiving officer and is not subject to the fellow officer rule. This is the description of the suspect supplied by the informant, the person with the first-hand knowledge. This is logical because it is the description that determines if the receiving officer's actions in detaining the suspect were justified. The court's decision on this seizure issue must be based only on the description that was actually supplied to the receiving officer. The fellow officer rule does not apply to the description of the perpetrator. If the sending officer omits a portion of the description in the transmission, that omitted part cannot be considered by the court in justifying the receiving officer's conduct in stopping the defendant. Also keep in mind that there is no such thing as the civilian officer rule that ascribes knowledge possessed by a civilian to an officer. Therefore, if a civilian is the person who supplies his or her first-hand knowledge to the sending officer, any information the civilian may possess but did not supply to the sending officer cannot be testified to at the hearing to justify the receiving officer's actions. When the suppression hearing is conducted to determine the lawfulness of the receiving officer's actions, the people must establish the reliability of the informant or the person supplying first-hand knowledge, and what was her basis or his basis of knowledge. This is often identified as the two-pronged Aguilar-Spinelli test. If the informant or person with first-hand knowledge is the officer who was also the sending officer, you will be able to establish the reliability of this informant as well as his or her basis of knowledge with his or her testimony at the hearing. When this sending officer is called to testify at the suppression hearing, he or she will testify to what he or she saw and heard that justified the intrusion upon the defendant as well as the description 
that he or she sent to the receiving officer. You will then call the receiving officer who will testify to what information and description he or she received from the sending officer and what actions he or she took after receiving that information. Because hearsay is admissible at the suppression hearing, it is also permissible to call only the receiving officer if that officer can supply all the evidence that will satisfy the Aguilar-Spinelli two-prong test. As the Court of Appeals wrote in the most important case in this area in New York case law, People v. Paris, though some courts have read our decisions requiring the sender to be called, that's not the case. The admissibility of the evidence is governed solely by Aguilar-Spinelli and not on the requirement that any particular witness be called at the hearing. If the first-hand informant is an identified civilian, he or she is presumed to be reliable for purposes of the officer acting upon the information he or she supplies. See the case of People v. Hetrick, the Court of Appeals decision from 1992. At the hearing, the civilian informant's basis of knowledge must be supplied such as he or she saw the events or is the actual victim and so forth. In conducting the hearing, remember, because hearsay evidence is permissible to be introduced for the truth of its content, it is permissible for the information supplied by the civilian informant to be introduced through the testimony of an officer. If the civilian spoke with the sending officer who supplied the information to the receiving officer, that officer may testify to what she was told by the civilian informant, including his or her basis of knowledge, and what information she supplied subsequently to the receiving officer, without having to call the civilian at the hearing. Some prosecutors prefer to call the civilian witness who will give the first-hand testimony and make the record very clear as to the informant's basis of knowledge. There are many different ways to do this, but the common sense approach is that you want to assure all the proper evidence is on the record for the court to be able to determine if the fellow officer rule requirements are met by the evidence you've presented at the hearing. Your primary goal is not to minimize the number of witnesses you call, but to assure the evidence you present will be sufficient for the court to deny the defense motion to suppress. It is imperative that at the hearing, you establish the informant's basis of knowledge. When the officer is the informant and is called as a witness, this is an easy issue to cover. However, when a civilian is the person with the first-hand knowledge and you are not calling that person with the first-hand knowledge, the officer or officers who, does, who do testify must supply this evidence. A failure to do this may result in a suppression for your failure to supply the informant's basis of knowledge. In the already mentioned People v. Paris decision, the identification was suppressed for the people's failure to specifically supply evidence of the civilian's basis of knowledge. Was she an eyewitness or did she receive the information from an eyewitness? This was never made clear on the record. Now, while some more recent decisions have held that similar facts were clear enough to infer the knowledge of the informant was firsthand. You should not depend on that kind of a ruling in order to assure your evidence is found to be sufficient. You must be absolutely positive your witness gives a clear recitation 
of his or her basis of knowledge. In determining the sufficiency of the information to justify the level of intrusion, remember that De Boer levels of intrusion dictate the amount of information an officer must possess to justify his or her actions. If the defendant is arrested, then you must establish the existence of probable cause. If, however, there is only a temporary detention, it only requires that you establish reasonable suspicion. You should always present alternate arguments if they exist to justify the police conduct. Failing to do so at the hearing will preclude that particular argument from being made upon any appeal. See the case of People v. Johnson, the Court of Appeals decision from 1984 that addresses this particular issue. For example, if you believe only reasonable suspicion is required, but you believe your officer possessed probable cause as well, make the argument that you have established both criteria. By doing so, if the appellate court believes probable cause was required, then you have preserved the right to so argue on appeal. In our already mentioned People v. Paris case, the people only argued the existence of probable cause. Due to the failure to supply the informant's basis of knowledge, the court rejected the people's position. On appeal, the people attempted to argue a form of transition from reasonable suspicion to probable cause. But the Court of Appeals wrote, people may not rely upon their alternative theory that the police had reasonable suspicion to stop the defendant on the street based on the description. That theory was never advanced before the suppression court and therefore may not be considered here. Now, the less evidence you possess about the informant's identity, the more detailed the evidence must be of what the arresting officer observed as to the description and location that matched the details by the informant. When an officer speaks, in person to an informant that does not identify him or herself. The officer is still in a position that permits him or her to evaluate the appearance and credibility of that informant. However, when dealing with strictly anonymous informants who are not seen and do not identify themselves, usually the result of an anonymous 9-11 call, the Court of Appeals held in the case of People v. Moore in 2006, an anonymous tip cannot provide reasonable suspicion to justify a seizure, except where that tip contains predictive information. The court then cites Florida EJL saying, indeed, in JL, a unanimous United States Supreme Court held that an anonymous tip regarding a young black man standing at a particular bus stop wearing a plaid shirt and carrying a gun was insufficient to provide the requisite reasonable suspicion to authorize a stop and frisk of the defendant. We want to thank our crack producer, Jonathan Marconi Crispino, for his outstanding work as always. And it's great to be back with all of you. And we hope that you will have a great upcoming, as we call it, programmatic year. And anything that we can do to help you here at NIPTI with the new cases, the new law, please let us know and we're here for you. And as always, stay well and stay ready, my friends.